Hello and welcome to the Safety and Quality Education Program podcast. Developed by Metro North Health Safety and Quality in partnership with the Clinical Skills Development Service, Metro North Health acknowledges the traditional custodians of the land upon we live, work and walk, and pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. The Safety and Quality Education Program has been designed with a focus on patient safety improvement, Each episode will explore ideas and stories in making our care delivery safer for our patients through the implementation of short notice accreditation. Our host is Dr. Mia McLanders, who is the manager of research at Clinical Skills Development Service. Mia is an applied researcher with a background in human factors and cognitive psychology. Joining Mia on this episode from Metro North Health is Dr. Joel DeHunty, and Belinda Barry. Joel is a specialist medical administrator and director of research at Redcliffe Hospital. He co-chairs the Redcliffe Hospital Standard 6, Communicating for Safety Committee. Belinda Barry is a consumer representative on the Metro North Standard 6, Communicating for Safety Committee. Belinda cared for her husband for 12 years before he passed away in late 2021. He was a frequent patient in the Cancer Care and Transplant Unit at Royal Brisbane Hospital. In this episode, our guests explore community safety. Joel, what clinical spaces do you find yourself in now? So um, my training was in um, um, largely in emergency medicine and in ICU, but at a point I made a decision to go down a medical administration pathway. And to a large extent, that is one step, um, one step off the ward or the um, the clinical environment, and it's often um, supporting clinicians um, um, is is a big part of my role. Um, when do I get involved in clinical matters? It is actually um, um, when I'm on call. We have something called Ryan's Rule when mm. patients um, need to escalate something. That's a point that I get involved or whether there are concerns or complaints. It's often some of the more challenging, difficulty, difficult things that I tend to get involved in as part of my medical administration role. So how did you two end up on the Standards Committee? Um, they put out a, an expression of interest and um, on the standards committees and I had been involved with West Morton on the standards and so I went, yeah, fine. And um, I ended up on two committees, so standard six and standard eight. So what can I do to help in future or, or how can my voice be heard better or louder to say, you know, we've done 11 years, you know, we, I know his condition and, and I know him better than anybody, but I wasn't heard that day. Um, and yes, okay, the, it wasn't a person's fault. It was a failure of, of, of a whole system basically mm. because they were under such a load of pressure and mm. there was so much going on that day and understaffing. But even so, had I been listened to, we, we would not have had John go to that degree and he would have, he would have stayed stable. We came and he was we actually came in early for the first time ever with an infection in 11 years. And um, that was the worst day that he nearly died. So I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah, so it, it was quite traumatic. Um, I ended up having to have a lot of counselling after that one. I got some PTSD from that. Mm. Um, I ended up with a horrible fear of the ED, which I'd never had before. Um, the next time I had to come in, I went into a full-blown panic attack, which I'd never had before. So it wasn't just John's 
what happened to him, it was also what happened to me. And I just, I do this um, consumer engagement because I want to help the people who are coming after us. And John and I said in the very beginning that we would be involved in trials, um, research, anything that could help others coming after us, no matter what the outcome was for us. So that's why I do it. That's very generous of you. I enjoy it now. <laughs> that's so, good. Yeah. Joel, that's really hard to hear, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah. But I guess I hear um, how important communication is in everything we do. Mm -hmm. I, You asked how did we get involved in communicating for safety and I don't know. I think um, we were dividing up portfolios and I man managed to get assigned to this committee and, um, and I am so um, glad of that um, because when I think about communicating for safety, it's, it's um, links to every single thing that we do in healthcare, whatever your role, whatever your position, um, it's fundamental what, to what we do every day of the week, um, all day, every day. Um, and, and I think this standard is unique in that regard. And I, and I think um, that idea that the, we are as a team is a really important message when we when we when we delve into this this topic. Um, so it's great to be part of the communicating for safety team. Yeah, I don't want to play favourites, but I think we just did right. Like I think this standard is it's you know, my favourite. It's right up there, isn't it? It is. Yeah. <laughs> um, what do you think, Joel, in terms of the difference between you know the cyclical sort of every three year kind of accreditation compared to the short notice accreditation that will improve patient outcomes? The thing about short notice accreditation is that it can happen anytime. And it's the accreditors are coming to see how does the rubber hit the road. So this is not a special event that we prepare for. This is looking at what do we do every day. Um, and I think that's in a really important point about short notice accreditation. So it's taking away um, this preparation for an exam kind of feeling to mm. say what should we be doing how do we live best practice all the time every time and for communicating for safety um, that is so important it's around the patient identification it's about staff um, introducing themselves and their role it's about um, um, handing over key information, checking information, checking understanding. It's, 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 it's linked to every single thing we do um, from the front door of the hospital, patient coming in for an elective surgery, coming into emergency department. It's about the teamwork to say clinical handover is not just for clinicians. Clinical handover is for all staff. It's clinical handover involves the patient, family and carer. And that's a powerful message that we need to demonstrate all the time. And accreditors, um, um, I, think, I think the accreditation process is important because it, 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 um, it, it gives us an external validation to say, are we doing what we say we do? So I think that's yeah. what you're saying is to sort of do a litmus test or a check on 
what our consistent habits are, not our every now and then habits. A bit like, yes. you know, our gym attendance, right? It's <laughs> what we do consistently is what matters most. I think another really important thing about the accreditation process, it's increasingly um, people-focused as opposed to document-focused. Oh, interesting. So, so the accreditors are coming in. They're following the patient journey. They're going to go to all of those handover meetings, those shift-to-shift, those bedside handovers, those multidisciplinary handovers, and they're going to see what – they're going to observe what's actually happening. Um, And so it is is looking at what is the culture, what is the practice of our hospital, our staff every day. Joel, when have you seen the handover done well in a clinical environment? Um, there are some elements that we know are essential um, to communicating for safety, but there's another layer on top of it. And Belinda's touched on this with her story earlier, which is about that respect and care. We can't communicate for safety without having that respect and care, but we know there are some elements that we've got to include. So that's around ensuring that I'm introducing who I am and what my role is to someone that I may um patient family that I haven't met before. So they know who, um, and that's a really important part of making it a caring environment. In terms of the um, the clinical handover, um, it's about communicating in, um, information that could be quite technical or could have a lot of information in a succinct Um, So having structure around how you communicate. And one of the tools that we use in a clinical environment is SBAR, so situation, background, assessment, response. Um, As a team, if we know how we are communicating, we can can tune in to to the key elements of it a lot better than a um, a discussion that may be rambling. Um, So Good, hand, good, good communication for safety has some structure. It's got some core elements around identification, self-identification, patient identification, um, involving, involve, so in bedside handover, involving the patient at the bedside. Um, um, uh, they are part of the handover process, checking in. Um, and an, a key part of it is actually... Um, checking that the information that's been handed over has been received. So that check back process to say, do you have any questions Um, um, and and allowing opportunity for um, confirmation that that message has been has been received. So there's some elements that when I see that, and I'm involved in in audits um, as part of our our, um, safety and quality process, when I see things like that, I see that there is good leadership of handover. I can see that there's structure. I can see that patient identification is um, is occurring, that patients are involved. They're all tick, tick, tick for me that I say this is a good handover. That's excellent. Belinda, what's it like from a consumer point of view, the difference between you know, a handover that involves you as a carer and consumer versus one where you're not involved or excluded from that handover? One of the things I fought hard for as carers particularly um, and patients, but carers to be involved in the handover, particularly in our chronic illness um, and also with my mother now with dementia as well, quite often she gets told stuff um, at the bedside and I'm not told 
mum doesn't remember it or she confuses it, gets it marked up. Um, the assessments that have been done, like for my mother, for example, she can be assessed by the physio for her ability to transfer and those sort of things. So if I'm not told before I take that person home about these changes or these things and I get home, I don't have a discharge summary yet because it hasn't been printed up and I'm then flying with what I've got. Mm. Um, I am a part of that care team as a carer and a very integral part of that care team. I get them to hospital when they're sick. I identify when things are going wrong. I sit with them in emergency and, and call out when I notice deterioration or something that's different. I know a lot about that person. I've been caring for them a long time. Jill, I want to hear more about your experiences though, like personally. You've seen a lot, right? You've been involved in accreditation and you've you know, you've been around the traps for a while now and I kind of, I want to hear your thoughts about when you walk into a clinical space and you see the communicating for safety um, attributes are really well exemplified versus not really, you're not necessarily going to see them as much in this particular environment. What's the difference from your point of view and in your experience? Mm. It's a really good question and but the effectiveness also comes down or the subtle things are all the day-to-day -day things. So we've got, we've got clinical staff who are checking medications, um, or sorry, they're, they're administering medications and the patient check, checking patient's name, date of birth, armband, and all of those steps are, um, are all our safety mechanisms in all of those steps along those processes. Um, request forms um, so um, not rushing to to do a request form and making sure that the information you're putting on there is correct the right patient those samples are labeled correctly all of those things are so significant um, and you can say oh these, there are all these little jobs that we're doing but they're all very important to do correctly um, all the time I remember back as a junior doctor I think you, you come out of medical school and you and you 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 have the you have the scientific knowledge or you think you do you've got mm. a lot to learn <laughs> but I remember back it's one of the most lear biggest learning curves for me was how do I how do I explain things to patients and their families? How do I listen? Um, and that was the big learning curve that I remember um, thinking about at, at, um, in those first couple of years out, out of medical school. I recognized that that was something that um, was the most challenging for me. And the more, the more years from, from that, that time looking back, it just re-emphasizes again and again how important that listening, how that communication is, and 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 we we often talk of it as a non-technical skill communication, but it is so so important, and it is we do need to practice it. We do need to we need to practice, um, and. Um, and we need to live it and we need to practice it and we need to reflect on it. What practice techniques have you found most useful with developing those skills in yourself? I think having a mental model of how to communicate um, gives me a tool that I can practice on, uh, practice on and um, Observing others is is another way that um, so seeing what is exemplar practice is a very powerful thing to reflect 
on to see what's really good and to see what's not good gives you some benchmarks to say, what should I be doing? Um, and hearing, hearing the consumer perspective and the impact of um, when things go well or don't go well is a really powerful reflective um, force for me, I find, in my mm. own practice. Mm -hmm. I'm curious to know about how your work with Ryan's Rule, you mentioned that earlier, yeah. how that interacts with this particular standard. I imagine that there is some elements of the calls that you get that relate to this standard. Yes, yeah, so so Orion's rule in its um, purest form is a safety mechanism to um, for patients and families to communicate when they feel they haven't been heard. Um, so it is a core element of communicating for safety. It gives um, it gives patients, family a mechanism um, to 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 raise issues. Orion's rule is actually putting around saying this, a response needs to be done in a timely fashion. So what do I find? I find myself um, the communication with uh, the patient or the family member who's ra raising the concerns. Often, um, it, for me, it's listening to those. It may not be actually finding the solution. Um, I may actually have to then do my clinical communication with the t treating team that are looking after it and asking for and discussing the issues with them and, and, and working out a plan with them so that response happens. So there's a, there's a, and, then, and then that clinical team are meeting with the patient and their family and that circle is really then completed. Um, um, if, if the concern has been raised by a family member, the urgent clinical review is a really important thing, but equally important is that call to the family member who may not be in the hospital to tell them what um, um, what's happened for them. So um, it's a full circle in terms of communi communicating for safety where multi multiple members of the team, including the patient and the family, are part of that, that response. Um, and that, at its best, that is what Ryan's rule is set, is set up to do communicate for safety. Fantastic. Belinda, coming back to what we were talking about earlier with just walking into a clinical space and being able to identify the difference between communicating for safety done well versus not, what are your experiences around that? Over the years, definitely seen both sides of the um, of the ball there. Um, it's um, when you come in and you have somebody who asks you first they ask you questions first and they want to hear from you. Um, that quite often indicates to me that the person is interested. Like, And then there were others when you walked in and they were like, okay, I've got this information here about you, but I don't know you and I don't know your case and I know you've been doing this a long time. Tell me what's concerning you today. I'm interested, I know for myself, having had experiences with um, family in you know, receiving healthcare, Joel, how do you go with family or yourself you know, in those environments you walk in, you're, you're maybe in an ED or in, in, in a procedural setting and you're seeing, I guess, you know, communication breakdowns or procedures and things that, you know, wouldn't pass auditing standards. How do you manage that for yourself? How do you reconcile it? You do feel vulnerable. Mm. You do feel vulnerable. Um, and anything that can empower 
you or your family to speak up and we've heard examples of speaking up and and innovative ways to provide information Um, anything that promotes confidence to ask questions anything that promotes a listening ear um, is is has got to be good Um, uh, i as a patient i probably feel i have an advocacy role um, um, not only for my health, but for my family's health and possibly for other patients. Um, and, and I think, I think that, that raises the importance of, um, I'm going to put my medical administrator hat back on for a minute because it's raised another thought in my mind about the importance of, of um, complaints. We think of them as a bad thing. Mm-hmm. They're not a bad thing if they're they're treated um, seriously because this is a, this opens a window to say how can we do things better. How is it that we can make this a more positive experience for people and and frame it in a way that it helps them with their practice rather than it becomes that big stick that we're or that shadow big big brother looming that's looming over them. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and I think the answer there's there's multiple answers to that. I think there is an there is definitely an organisational responsibility, but equally there's an individual responsibility and the power of an individual to role model and to influence our, our, um, people around them. I don't think we can underestimate underestimate. Quite often, like you say, people come to work, particularly healthcare workers to do the right thing mm-hmm. and to help people. Mm-hmm. They're not there going, I'm going to do a really bad job today and I'm going to make sure that that person over there gets sicker. Mm-hmm. <laughs> sicker, what a word. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, so so it's like when you're making a complaint from the patient's side, I think that it's important to take away that blame thing and actually put the facts out. Because when I get up in front of an executive team or something and I tell them about an event that's happened in their hospital and I say to them, I I give them a step of facts, they can't argue it. They can't go, oh, no, he didn't do that. And he can't stand and go, you're making this about me. It's not about you. It's actually about the system and what happened there. For example, we were talking about um, violence in the ED and um, people being, the, the, the team being um, abused by people. And I said, well, you know, last week I took mum in, you know, and I went through step by step from actually trying to get my mother from the car, he's disabled in a wheelchair, from the car with, in a two-minute park and into the emergency, then having to leave her for nearly half an hour to go and park my car, having a bad note written on my windscreen telling me I was going to get towed away <laughs> because, you know, I hadn't moved it in two minutes. So by the time I actually got out the back with mum, then we went through all this and she hadn't had her night medications and she gets bad pain. So I was asking after and after and after, can mum have her pain medication? Can this happen? And I kept getting to, oh, we'll check, we'll check. So four hours goes past, mum's in pain, and I'm like, this is ridiculous. So I just pulled her tablets out because I had them there and I just started giving her her tablets like I would normally at home. All of a sudden I had this rush of people around me. Mm. Oh, what are you doing? What are you doing? You can't be doing that. I said, well, nobody else is giving anything and mum needs these. She's a diabetic. She's got this, this and this. And she can't be here not having had this medication. I need somebody to approve it or I'm just going to give it to her. Um, And I got angry. I got upset. I, if I was an abusive person, would have been abusive. Because I, it was late, I'd had a full day at work, I'd come home to mum collapsed. All these things had happened. And I said, 
I'm not that person, but I became that person that night mm. because I was just so frustrated and so worked up at what was going on in an already heightened environment. And I said, this is where we need to be thinking about those little things like, how do I get my mum from the car when there's no call alarm? How do I deal with this? What can the hospital do to make that process just coming in the door a little easier? Mm. So It's so important, Belinda. And from what I've you've told me today, you are such a powerful advocate for consumers and we really appreciate the work that you do and the voice that you are. Thank you. Mm. Joel, anything you want to add before we sign off? Is there just in terms of advice for people or something that you typically see as an, as an auditor that people are often getting tripped up on during the, the process of accreditation, anything? Uh, one message would be identification, identification, identification. Um, and I say it three times because it is important. Patient identification is so important. I say it uh, three times because um, accreditors are looking that we use three patient identifiers, asking patients their name, asking their date of birth, checking their UR number or asking their address. Um, and accreditors, are, when they come and observe our handover, they will be looking to see are we using patient identification. So that's a key message that we need to keep um, front and centre in our minds and in our practice about the importance of identification.